2 Kings chapter 9, 14 through 37 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But the king of Aram had returned, uh, rather King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Aramaeans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city or tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Azahiah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of, in Jezreel and saw the company of Jehu as he came. He said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So horsemen went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, The messenger came to them, but he did not return. Then he sent a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported. He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. And Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his official, uh, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I've seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, 
says the Lord, and I will repay you. In this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is in Iblium. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the grave with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became, became king over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him. And he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, This is Jezebel. Reading of God's holy word. Let's pray, seeking God's face for his blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word. God of all glory and justice, we come before your throne, mindful of your greatness, mindful that you are exalted on high, that you are on heaven and we are here on earth. And we humble ourselves before you, O Lord, and we humble ourselves before your word. We pray that you'd show us the things that the Spirit himself has inspired in this portion of your holy word, and that by the Spirit's ministry within us, we might be given to understand uh, what your will is for your church and uh, what your word says in our day and our time. Understand your character, O Lord, for you are a God who never changes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we take up our text, 
tonight. Ahab's son Joram is reigning, but Elisha has sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint uh, Jehu, king of Israel, to to take care of uh, the last bit of Elijah's unfinished business, that which uh, the Lord had told him to do to uh, anoint Hazael, king of uh, Aram, to anoint Jehu, king of Israel, to anoint Elisha as prophet in his place. Jehu is to be Jehovah's instrument of vengeance on Ahab's house for the evil that it has done, killing God's true prophets and proliferating Baal worship in the northern kingdom. But ultimately, vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's evident by the I wills of here in chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. Jehovah says, I will avenge the blood of my servants. And I will cut off Ahab from Ahab every male person, both bond and free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Jehovah's vengeance, we noticed last Lord's Day, is thorough. He leaves no sinner unpunished. It's personal. God notices the particular sins of particular people, and it's deadly. God operates according to the strictest standards of justice. In this case, there were murders to avenge. And therefore, the execution of Jehovah's judgment in our text necessarily involves the assassinations of the kings of Israel and Judah and the slaying of Ahab's wife, Jezebel, all of whom were complicit in the sins of Ahab's house. We'll consider two things here in verses 14 to 37. In the first place, the justice of Jehovah's judgment, and secondly, the gruesomeness of Jehovah's judgment. The justice and the gruesomeness of Jehovah's justice. First, we're considering the justice of Jehovah's judgment. Freshly anointed as God's instrument of vengeance, Jehu wastes no time in carrying out Jehovah's prophetic word of judgment on Ahab's Ahab's house. First thing we read in verse 14 is that Jehu conspired against Joram. With the mention of Ramoth Gilead in verse 14, we're reminded of Israel's national situation. 
Joram had, had been defending uh, Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram, chapter 8, verse 28. Uh, we're further reminded that Joram was wounded in Ramoth Gilead and had returned to Jezreel to convalesce, chapter uh, 9 and verse 15. Uh, we read about that in chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Following his anointing at Ramoth Gilead, Jehu had been proclaimed king by his comrades in arms. Chapter 9 and verse 13. But he wanted the succession plans, including uh, an unannounced visit to Jezreel, to remain secret. So he says to his comrades here in chapter 9 and verse 15, if this is your mind, that is, if you uh, have determined to uh, crown me the, the king of Israel, he says to his comrades, let no one escape or leave Ramoth Gilead to go tell it in Jezreel. In verse 16, uh, we catch up with Jehu, this one who has, uh, we're told, has conspired against uh, Joram, the king, uh, the reigning, the current king of Israel. He's driving his chariot furiously en route to Jezreel because he knew that Joram was there. And there in verse 16, we're, we're reminded that Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to visit. He'd gone to war uh, at Ramoth Gilead with uh, Joram against uh, Hazael, king of Aram. And then when uh, Joram, uh, King Joram of Israel retired to Jezreel, then Ahaziah, king of Judah, uh, went to visit Joram there as he was uh, recovering. There's a watchman's report in uh, verse 17. At, at the moment of, uh, that this watchman reports, Joram doesn't know that uh, Jehu has been anointed as uh, Israel's next king, nor does he yet know it's Jehu who's leading uh, this company. But upon hearing the report, he sends two horsemen to find out what's happening, what's going on, uh, both Messengers dutifully express the king's query, thus says the king, is it peace? And both receive the same answer from Jehu. What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. Watchman reports both messengers' failure to return and identifies this mad chariot driver as Jehu, but Joram still has no idea what, what all this meant, what this company uh, being led by, by Jehu and his chariot, what, what this all means. Conceivably, Jehu, one of the captains of Israel's army, uh, could have been bringing a word of victory, or more likely, a, a word of defeat. Joram's suspicions were likely raised when his two horsemen didn't return, but what choice did he have? One way or another, he had to find out what was going on, so he decided to go out himself. 
to meet Jehu. Jehovah's judgment then strikes Joram, king of Israel, first in verses 21 to 26. And the echoes of uh, the earlier passages here in Kings inform us, confirm for us uh, that what happens in this account is just. Significantly, uh, the narrator reports that Joram met Jehu in the property of Naboth, the Israelite, verse 21, recalling the the murder of of this innocent Israelite by uh, Jezebel's plotting and by Ahab's complicity, 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 16. Also significant here uh, is the mention of Jezebel's idolatry and witchcraft in verse 22 of our text. Joram discerns Jehu's treachery when Jehu answers his direct query, is it peace with what peace? so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Echoes of Ahab's death resound throughout this passage as Joram suddenly made aware of Jehu's words, by Jehu's words of his intentions as he turns to flee He's struck by an arrow and killed, just as Ahab, remember, was struck by an arrow and killed. 1 Kings 22, verse 34. Joram's death, like his father's, is portrayed as divine justice for the blood of Naboth and as fulfillment of prophecy, that prophecy that we're given concerning King Ahab, 1 Kings 21, 19. We see the fulfillment in 1 Kings 22, verse 38. That prophecy, the prophecy concerning King Ahab of 1 Kings 21, verse 19, prompted Jehu to instruct his officer Bidkar to cast Joram's body, verse 25, into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Jehu was with King Ahab when Elijah announced this word of Jehovah, the word of judgment upon King Ahab. And Jehu quotes that word here in verse 26. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons says the Lord, and I will repay you on this property, says the Lord. So Jehu directs Bidkar, uh, who was also there uh, when Ahab received this word from Elijah uh, to cast the body of uh, Joram's, uh, this this lifeless carcass of of Joram on Naboth's uh, land to fulfill that prophecy. And here in verse 26, we learn something that we didn't learn in 1 Kings 21. 
when Elijah pronounced this word of judgment on Ahab's house, Jezebel had Naboth's sons murdered as well, which, is, which of course was necessary to eliminate all the heirs of uh, the property that uh, Ahab wanted for himself. So Jehu takes vengeance, Jehovah's vengeance on Ahab's house. Uh, King Ahab is dead, um, but he exacts vengeance on Joram, his son, because Joram is complicit in the sins of Ahab's house. Joram has walked in the ways of King Ahab, remember. Uh, he, he worshipped the Baals. He followed the Baals. Uh, and so he receives Jehovah's hand of justice, uh, justice here first. And then King Ahaziah, innocently enough, visiting King Joram in Jezreel while he's recuperating, uh, is also put to death. We don't, uh, the, the narrator doesn't spend much time at all relating uh, the, the, the assassination of Ahaziah, king of Israel. Only, for the most part, enough to, to say that he was uh, also killed by Jehu. So judgment fell on Judah too, not only because of Ahaziah's foolish alliance with Ahab's house, uh, with Joram, but also because, chapter 8, verse 27, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab had done because he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now remember, First uh, and Second Kings was originally written to the captives in Babylon, the captives of Judah. Judah had been carried away to Babylon. Imagine how this text of Joram's assassination uh, and uh, especially Ahaziah's assassination, imagine how that would have struck uh, the people of Judah. Uh, they, this would have raised significant concerns for the original audience uh, there in Babylon that the line of David would be snuffed out and that uh, and this possibility will, will emerge even more powerfully in chapter 11 when Athaliah destroys all of the royal house of uh, the royal offspring after uh, her son Ahaziah's death. But such fears, remember, have already been assuaged by the promise of chapter 8 and verse 19. There we read that the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised to give him a, a lamp, to, promised to give a lamp to him through his sons, always. And so captive Judah is assured. And we're assured. 
that God is on his throne of judgment and that he's working through all of these political and military episodes uh, here uh, in chapter 9 and bringing about his holy will in all these things and that his promise concerning David still stands because God always does what he says. Well, if Joram's assassination highlights the justice of Jehovah's judgment, Jezebel's end displays the gruesomeness of Jehovah's judgment. Not that uh, Jezebel's end doesn't also display the justice of Jehovah's judgment. Indeed, it does. But in this short, these short verses here, in uh, verses 29 through 37, uh, what we see is pretty gruesome, uh, what the Lord does, the way this, uh, this uh, judgment on, on Jezebel is carried out. So we'll consider then, secondly, the gruesomeness of uh, Jehovah's judgment. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it. She knows that her son Joram has been assassinated, that Jehu is coming after her, and that there's no escaping it. And so, in an act of defiance, she puts on her makeup and fixes her hair and waits by the window for Jehu to show up, thinking that if she's going to go, she's going to go out in style. Once Jehu had entered the gate, uh, she calls out to him with the same query that Joram had put to him, but with an added note of sarcasm. Verse 31, is it peace, Zimri, your master's murderer? It's a clever taunt, because although Zimri, an earlier commander of Israel's army, had murdered his, his master, Elah, he ruled for only seven days. 1 Kings 16, verses 8 to 20. So in her sarcastic way, Jezebel was saying that Jehu's victory would be short-lived. Jezebel uh, had plagued Israel for many years with the harlotries of uh, Baalism. But in the end, it took only a moment for Jehu to rid the northern kingdom of her. In verses 32 and 33, he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. They threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And Jehu tramples her underfoot. And then... uh, the newly anointed and successor of Joram, king of Israel, took a meal break. And when he returned, he, he said to his servants, go and bury king, uh, Queen Jezebel, uh, for she is a king's daughter. But the burial crew encountered a problem. Uh, they, uh, the scavenger dogs had been busy, 
And they found nothing more than a skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When the bearer crew returns to inform Jehu, he quotes Elijah's prophecy recorded in 1 Kings 21-23, and given for us again in verse 36 of our text, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Now, Jehu quotes more than 1 Kings 21-23 reports Elijah's saying here in verse 37. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, this is Jezebel. It could well be that uh, the 1 Kings passage simply summarizes Elijah's prophecy and that uh, he actually said more. We don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, Jehu, uh, whether he's uh, adding to the prophecy, which some think, or whether he's uh, simply uh, filling out what this prophecy was initially in, in 1 Kings 21, uh, we have the word of the Lord concerning Queen Jezebel. So the queen, who had shed much blood, has her blood splattered on the wall, of the palace wall in Jezreel. This, is, uh, this wasn't simply poetic justice. It was divine justice. The scavenging dogs had eaten her just as Elijah promised, leaving only those parts that were too filthy even for them. In a sermon on this passage, One R.G. Lee says, God Almighty saw to it that the hungry dogs despised the brains that conceived the plot that took Naboth's life. God Almighty saw to it that the mangy dogs of the back alleys despised the hands that wrote the plot that took Naboth's life. God Almighty saw to it that the lousy dogs despised the feet that walked in Baal's courts and then in Naboth's vineyard. Jezebel's death shows how God deals with evildoers. As Jehu put it in verse 34, Jezebel was a cursed woman. And in the end, she received the just punishment for idolatry of violent death. So the events of 2 Kings chapter 9 show us that our God is an avenging God. Nevertheless, not everyone believes this. Some take the Bible's teachings about the loving nature of God to mean that he is incapable of ordering such kinds of carnage in this portion of 2 Kings. They explain such passages by saying uh, that God himself didn't sanction these bloody doings of Jehu and that the author of 2 Kings wrongly 
attributed these things to God. Others suggest that God indeed operates this way in the Old Testament, but that he's now abandoned such judgmental dealings. And that Jesus came for the explicit purpose of changing God from being judgmental to being loving. And they point to the cross of Christ, claiming that it's the, that, the, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme proof that God is no longer the avenging God of the Old Testament, but is now loving and non-judgmental. Of course, they only see part of the truth of the cross. Yes, of course, the cross does manifest God's love. No Bible-believing Christian would argue that, uh, who's in his right mind anyway, would, would argue that the cross of Christ does not manifest God's love. There's absolutely no doubt about that, but it also manifests the holiness of God and the justice of God. There on that cross, the avenging God who never changes, I, the Lord, do not change, uh, the Lord says, was actually pouring out his uh, wrath due to sinners upon Christ so that sinners will never have to bear that wrath themselves. The New Testament, remember, clearly asserts that the God of the Old Testament is still the avenging God. We won't take time to read these, but, but that truth is evident from Romans 12, 19, from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 9, from Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 31, from Revelation 6, 10. We considered that this morning in our exposition of the book of Revelation. That's that passage in chapter 6 where the uh, John sees the martyrs under the throne of God and they're, they're crying out for vengeance to the Lord. How long, O oh Lord, will you wait to bring justice on those who have, uh, who, who have taken our lives? So God, indeed, is still an avenging God and the avenging God has declared that all will eventually stand before him to give an account of themselves. Romans 14, verse 12. What a solemn and terrifying thought. Is there a way that we can be at peace with God? Is there a way... Uh, that we can have confidence in standing before God on that day of judgment. Of course, as clearly as the Bible proclaims that God is still an avenging God, 
It, it proclaims that there is a way that we can have peace with God. It declares that there is a way that we, have con- we can have confidence uh, as we stand before him. And that way uh, is the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The truth of the matter is, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll either be bearing our own sins or Christ will be bearing them for us. If we're bearing our own sins, we will experience the full force of God's wrath against sin. But if Jesus is bearing our sins because we believed in Him, then we'll find ourselves exempt from God's wrath and a given entrance into the eternal glories of heaven itself. The most urgent and pressing matter in this life, therefore, is to make sure that we find ourselves united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. To be sure that we've Uh, repented of sins, that we have genuinely trusted in the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone is the only way to escape the wrath and curse of the avenging God due to us for sin. This avenging wrath, the the vengeance of God poured out in justice upon sinners here in 2 Kings 9 is only a foretaste of that great and final day. In fact, I was just saying to someone this morning, if God is pleased to take us before Jesus returns again in his glory, we will meet with judgment upon our death. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We must, if we're to have any peace with God concerning this terrifying prospect of judgment, uh, if we're to have any confidence in standing before God, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, We must be sure. Do you hear me, children? Do you hear me, young people? Not merely that I'm professing with my mouth. Not merely that I'm I'm going through the motions of saying that I I am trusting Christ. I believed in Christ. uh, But bearing the fruit of righteousness in my life. uh, Bearing uh, the fruit of God's holy work in me, the sanctifying work, the fruit of the Spirit in my life, in my heart, that through this blessed unity by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, a a, a union that is so simple, so simply transacted, and yet so profound, such that we'll never plumb the depth 
of what it means to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. It means many things. and We could be here for a lot, a, a, a lot longer uh, if we were to uh, even mention some of those things. But certainly here, it's great assurance to the soul, isn't it? That because of Christ, I am at peace. In a world of turmoil, I, I have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I have confidence before my maker. I have confidence before the judge of all the earth. That I will indeed escape the wrath and curse of God due to me for my sin. Amen. Amen. Our God and our Father, we confess, O Lord, that that sometimes as we read these Old Testament passages and we, uh, we see the blood, we see the gruesomeness of of these assassinations, these slayings. Uh, And it makes our minds wonder what kind of God could do this, what kind of God could be uh, be behind these things, could uh, could, uh, call upon his prophet to anoint the one who is the instrument of his vengeance in bringing down... Uh, the house of Ahab in blood. But, O Lord, we thank you for the continual reminders that you give us, not only in uh, the Old Testament scriptures, but also in the New, uh, that your wrath has not been appeased in the case of those who do not know Christ. And your wrath will indeed, and your curse will indeed abide on those who haven't turned to him in faith. We pray for our own hearts, uh, that we, O Lord, would be diligent to make our callings sure, diligent uh, to make sure that uh, we are among those who uh, have indeed genuinely put our faith in Jesus Christ and uh, are seeking him and seeking to live uh, in the fruit of the Spirit. We pray for our children. Uh, We pray for especially children who are adults or uh, young adults who profess faith in Christ but who are not living uh, a life of obedience uh, before you, O God. We pray for uh, our younger children who from the knee have heard about you, O Father, and who, uh, who confess their love for you. Uh, we pray, O Lord, that uh, you would grant, if you've not already done so, that you would uh, grant our, our young children, the young members of this church, uh, the gift of new birth, the grace of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that they would never know a day 
when they have not loved and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And we pray for our older children, adults, uh, young adults, young people. We ask, O oh Lord, that if, if there are any uh, in our congregation who are, uh, who are not genuinely converted, uh, that you, O oh God, would be pleased to grant them as well the gift of new birth, that you would regenerate their hearts, and that you would give to them as well the grace of repentance and faith. We pray that uh, this warning that we've, we've seen in, in uh, 2 Kings 9 would, would be a warning to us, even those of us who truly believe in Christ, a warning to us of our need to fear you, the avenging God, not to fear the judgment that's coming because we belong to Christ, but to reverence you, O Lord, uh, even to give praise to you for the vengeance you carry out and to rejoice, uh, even as the Psalms teach us to do, in your judgment, in your vengeance upon the wicked. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.